welcome to the Shiro Podcast, where we celebrate women in the legal profession and discuss some of the challenges and issues they face. This podcast is brought to you by the Texas Young Lawyers Association. Hi, this is Lauren Sepulveda from the Texas uh, Young Lawyers Association. I am your District 13 Director. We have a very special guest. I'm here with Senior Retired Justice uh, Linda Reyna Yanez. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Justice Yanez, she is the first Latina to serve on a court of appeals bench in the state of Texas, and she's also a visiting judge in Hidalgo County, which is where I practice, and we're so glad to have you here today with us, Judge. Uh, we really want to thank you for giving us your time and for being willing to talk to us about this podcast and, and some of the challenges and, and issues you faced while you got to where you are. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now I'm going to go through Judge Yanez's resume. It's quite lengthy. Uh, she has done some incredible things. So Judge Yanez uh, graduated from uh, the University of Texas Pan American, which is now commonly known as University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, in 1970 with a Bachelor's of Arts. She then attended Texas Southern University's Law School in 1976 for her Juris Doctorate and was awarded a Master of Laws from the University of Virginia Law School in 1998. She's licensed not only to practice in the state of Texas, but to practice in Illinois and also licensed to practice in the Northern District of Illinois Trial Bar and in the Southern District of Texas, and has practiced in the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals and the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, her most recent position she held, aside from visiting judge and very busy grandma, is Senior Justice of the 13th Court of Appeals, and she was on the bench of the 13th Court of Appeals from 1993 to 2010. She has also been a clinical instructor at Harvard Law School since 1991 in their trial advocacy program, and served on the Clinton and Gore presidential transition team as the head of the immigration team in 1992. She has worked with American Amer uh, Mexican American Legal Defense Fund in Chicago, also with Texas Rural Legal Aid here in Texas, and was a partner at Weichenbach in Brownsville, Texas, and has served as a consulting attorney for the Mexican Consul General in both Brownsville and in Boston. Uh, Judge, welcome. That's just a very short sampling of your resume. Um, I wanted to start today by getting a little background from you on, on how you got to where you are. Growing up in the Rio Grande Valley, what was your childhood like? Well, my childhood in terms of family was, you know, pretty nice childhood because I had a very supportive family. And when you're a child, you, you know, you just don't think about your circumstances in a way that that is with all the challenges right mm -hmm. and so we had a lot of economic challenges uh, my parents did not finish even high school but i think that's why they were so strongly supportive of us to get an education and knowing that was going to be our way to move up in the world and uh and i tell people my family told me that I was beautiful and smart, and one person told me, and you believed them. And <laughs> I did. And, you know, that's actually quite profound because mm -hmm. when you have children and you motivate them and you lift their self-esteem, that makes all the difference in the world. I didn't grow up in a place where people were putting me down or making me feel like I couldn't do it. It was quite the opposite. So I think that was just the most important thing that I had that led to my being able to su be successful the rest of my life. Now, when you were growing up, uh, you were growing up in rural Cameron County uh, in Rio Hondo. Is that correct? Correct. Um, you know, you said your parents hadn't, hadn't had the opportunity to finish high school. Oh, what what kind of things were they doing? What what did your family do in order to to get their income to live on? 
Yes, uh, they started working very, very early. I know that my mom worked in a, a tomato canning mm -hmm. company when they were in the valley, and my dad had done a variety of different kinds of, of labor. And then when I was in high school, the unemployment situation in, in the valley was, was very, very high. And so they decided to move to go north and see what was out there and ended up getting jobs with a crew going up to work in the uh, vegetable fields in Illinois with my grandfather. Mm -hmm. So my grandfather and my, myself and my sister worked in the vegetable fields doing hoeing so that my parents could go and get jobs in the factories. But that gave us a place to live mm -hmm. in a farm worker migrant camp where the conditions were pretty bad. And my life dovetailed back to that later in life mm -hmm. because that stayed with me, the, the, that that we could have those kinds of conditions for human beings in America. Yeah. And uh, I was able to address some of that later on in life. But I experienced that in the moment when I was in when I was in high school. So I was out there in those fields and I had also worked in the cotton fields mm. in South Texas before we went up north. So uh, working in these fields, I was going through some articles about you and um, one described how during your breaks when you were working, you know, agricultural labor, you would go find a shade tree and just devour classic novels. Uh, where did you find your love from reading for them? I, that just was innate. Mm -hmm. uh, when I was, I was a year ahead of myself. First of all, I went to a segregated school. Mm -hmm. And so because I spoke English when I started school, first of all, my mother placed me in first grade at five instead of kindergarten. So I never went to kindergarten. And my mother had taught me how to read when I was that young. And I just loved books. And that was from that time to, to this day. And so when I was uh, in high school, which is when we were working in the fields, I had a fabulous English teacher, Mr. Landrum, who had <clears throat> decided to put together what he called an advanced English class in our little tiny school. And there was just a few of us in that class, and he had a little library literally there. And I, but I had been motivated since I was in, in sixth grade. We had a very tiny little library, and I made it my mission to read every single book in that little library, and I did. And so we were out there in that horrible heat. We wore clothes, you know, long sleeves, gloves, hats, bandanas, you name it, to cover yourself from the, from the heat. And then we, took, we had to take a decent break because of the heat, and that's what I would do. I would go sit and I'd lay up against the, uh, the tires of the big trucks that they had out there and find some shade and, and, do, my, and do my reading to get my escape. And who were your favorites when you would take these breaks? I was this, um, I really got hooked at the time. I mean, I loved English literature, but I really got hooked on Thomas Hardy and Dostoevsky and got very into that whole, the Russian literature. It just, you know, it just, they just blew my mind. And, uh, and I know those were kind of, you know, pessimistic stories, but, mm -hmm. but that was what drew me. When you were, uh, you know, working the fields and, and reading as you were growing up, uh, was the end goal always to be a lawyer or at that point were you thinking of a different career? No, uh, no, not at all. I wanted to be a teacher and I saw uh, the king and I mm -hmm. and, uh, and, <laughs> <laughs> and 
And I wanted to be her, you know, uh, the teacher in, mm-hmm. in, you know, character. Yeah, I just thought the idea of teaching was just, to me, it just, and I was just enthralled with the idea of, of being able to, to, to teach. And I, in my head, was thinking of teaching um, young people. And so you eventually did get a chance to become a teacher, is that mm-hmm. correct? I did. Uh, I did. I, uh, I taught in, in the Valley, actually, and I taught in Westlaco. And in the elementary school, I had, a, I had a first grade class, and that's where I learned about the kids that were living on in those labor camps mm-hmm. in Westlaco. I don't think they have them anymore, but they used to have them back then. Mm-hmm. And that's when Texas had a law in the books that said that if a child entered the country unlawfully, I don't the language was so uh, not precise. Mm-hmm. And so the persons who determined whether these children had the proper, quote, immigration documents were the school districts mm-hmm. as opposed to the immigration service. Okay. And so they had their own idea of what, you know, lawfully admitted, I think, was the language that they mm-hmm. had. And so we had children in the same family because, as you know, in the Valley, we have people born on one side, people born on the other side, and they're in the same family. They may be siblings. Uh, parents are U.S. citizens, but they don't know it because they were born and then they moved to Mexico. Sure. And, uh, and so we had all these mixtures. And in all that mess, the school districts were making these determinations, and you had kids that were sitting at home, and their siblings were in school, and the others were not in school. And I, I saw that at that time, and it just seemed so wrong to me. And I went and I spoke before the, uh, the West Coast School District, and they mm-hmm. paid zero attention to me. And that's when I got involved in the political campaign in 1972 as a teacher, and it was doing that work that David Hall, who was then and has been up until recently the head of, of, of TRLA for, what, 40 years? Yes. Uh, and when he met me that that young, I was in my early 20s, he was the one that said, you need to go to law school. Yeah, and I, I'm with all uh, clear, clarity. I'm also from Westlaco, so I appreciate you teaching in our schools. I think it's really important for kids to have teachers that inspire them. But given the conditions as they were back then, where we had these labor camps, and we still, in all fairness, do have them in certain cities here in the Rio Grande Valley still, um, you know, fighting for children to have the right to go to school, I think, is one of the humblest things you can do. And once you got involved, I believe it was with a governor campaign, right? You were running mm-hmm. a governor or, or participating the, the, in a governor? It was a presidential, it was McGovern's, McGovern's presidential campaign and in so, 1972. Getting involved in all that and meeting Mr. Hall, who, as you said, just recently retired from Texas Rural Legal Aid, um, how did he inspire you? Did he just drop an application on your desk, basically? Literally. Literally. He came over to me one day at my house mm-hmm. because he had been telling me, you need to go to law school. And I said, I can't, I can't. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm teaching. I have a child. There's no way. How in the world am I going to go to law school? I don't yeah. have any money. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and literally one afternoon, Sunday afternoon, he showed up at my house. And he said, here's a, a law school application. This school is still taking applications. Every, nobody else was. Mm-hmm. So this is this is a school that will still take an application. And I want to say it was like late spring, like May. It was late. And he goes, you fill it out, send it in. And I'm like, oh. and he literally sat there with me. Mm-hmm. And we did it. And we sent it off. And I forgot about it because I was teaching. And while I was a school teacher, I, I traveled to Nebraska in the summers of the mm. time that I was a school teacher to teach migrant children in Nebraska. Okay. So I took off to Nebraska, and I was on my way back, 
and I called my house. I said, we're, we're in, in New Mexico, I think. We were driving back, and my sister says, you got a letter from some law school or something, and I'm like, I did? Yes, well, you know, do you want me to open it? Open it. And there was my acceptance letter, and it was one of those, do I go? Do I not go? And mm -hmm. and and David is, of course you go. And I'm like, how am I going to do? And I was still had all these questions. And he's like, you you go. You're just going to go. That's how I ended up in law school. How important do you feel it was for you having that person, Mr. Hall, who just believed in you and thought you could do it and thought you would excel in this area? Well, it was more than significant mm -hmm. because, frankly. I don't know if I would have done it later on. Maybe I would have still done it later on because I was getting myself involved in these issues that I felt I really didn't have a, a voice that anybody took seriously, mm -hmm. sadly, because I was, quote, only a teacher. Wow. And I also didn't understand the law, but I had all those questions about issues from, from you know migrant issues to, to education issues to civil rights issues because I had lived that life. Mm -hmm. I had lived the life. And I don't, maybe I would have still, but I wouldn't have done it then. Yeah. And, and David was absolutely the, the most significant and the catalyst for me going to law school at that time, at that moment. And at the time you had already had your, your first daughter, uh, yes. Reggie, who is a personal friend of mine and is a really fabulous defense attorney here in the Valley. So going to law school, facing all those challenges, not knowing exactly how you were going to pay for it, having a child already... It seems incredibly daunting, but you did it. I did. I took my teacher retirement because the, the cost was not so terrible. Originally, I took Reggie with me, and it just was so difficult trying to, to balance all of that. And I also worked, mm -hmm. I, and they told us not to work. And I'm like, well, too bad. I got to work. And so I, I did. I got a job with a, with, with a, with a, law, a lawyer and uh, you know to do a little bit of, of research for them. It was just too much, and luckily at the time, uh, my grandmother was like, look, have Reggie here, and I would come every two weeks on the weekends, and of course, we had long holidays, you know, all the different breaks, and I would be here, and then on my breaks, uh, then I would get jobs, uh, and so it was tough for me and for Reggie, and I've had to ask her for forgiveness that, you know, for those three years, we had to spend so much time apart. Yeah. And so I'd actually like to jump ahead right now because I think you have one of the most interesting bar stories I've ever heard. So you end up uh, taking the bar and your first bar you took was in Illinois. That's correct, right? Correct. So you are actually pregnant when the bar exam rolls around. And I've read that they actually made you take it in a room apart from everybody else. Why was that? Well, when I got ready to go to take the, the test, I took it at Northwestern Law School. Uh, the, one of the women from the bar uh told me that they wanted to know because I was hugely pregnant I was like eight and a half months pregnant and uh, they said that some of the guys that took the bar review courses with me mm -hmm. had gone to the bar and said there's this pregnant woman we see her at the bar review courses and we're not going to take the test in the same room with her because if she goes into labor she is going to disrupt the test and you know ruin all our lives and so they asked me if I would take the test in another room as opposed to in the big auditorium, mm -hmm. which I was perfectly happy to do because the auditorium had those little flip Oh, things. yeah. And so in the, in the room they took me to had some tables, and there were several women who said, we'll take the bar, you know, we'll, we'll 
sit there, you know, in that room. And so I did. I took it in another room uh, with some other women in in the room with me. That's awesome. And so you get your results. Exactly how do you get your results when you, you first You got to remember, <laughs> young people, that there were no computers, no cell phones, nothing like that. Everything was in the mail. And I had just given, because in Illinois, you get your results faster. You get them in April. Wow. It takes for every boy to get them in April because it's it's a lot smaller state. And so, and so I was home. I was working for legal aid and I was on maternity leave and I get a call from the office. No, I didn't get a call from them. I call them. How's everybody doing? Fine. We just took Armando to lunch because he passed the bar. And I was like, what? The bar results are out? (laughs) Yes. I slammed the phone down, ran to the mailbox. I didn't have a mail key. Went and got a screwdriver and I broke into my mailbox, you know, who knows what federal laws I violated. <laughs> and there it was, there was the, a letter and I, uh, and my little baby Amparo was, uh, you know, laying there on the couch. He was just a few weeks old and I opened it up and I just saw it is our pleasure. And I just started screaming and jumping up and down and looking at the walls because there was nobody there with me except Amparo. <laughs> and that's how I found out that I passed the bar exam in Illinois. That's amazing. And you did some really amazing work while you were in the state of Illinois fighting for the rights, mainly of Spanish-speaking minorities. Um, but you eventually decided to come back to the state of Texas. And you took the bargain with no prep course, which is such a scary concept to me. I know. I, I, I couldn't because I had to work. Mm-hmm. I had to work full time. And here's another. This is a very important point that I'm going to make because I think it's important even today. And that is we live in the valley. Yeah. And and I assume that that's the same as it was when I was. And there no are bar no bar courses. review nope. courses in the valley. So I would have had to go to Houston or Dallas or San Antonio or somewhere. And I lived in Brownsville. And I couldn't because I literally had a full-time job and I had two children. And I couldn't go. And so I ordered some some tapes and, you know, listened to them when I could. Um, so I didn't take any any bar review courses. And I thought, well, I've already been licensed, I think, three years by then. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to take it. And so that's how I took the Texas bar. You know, I think that's a huge point to make about the availability of bar courses in rural areas. I mean, I don't really consider the Rio Grande Valley rural anymore, where the, I believe the sixth, Hildago County is the sixth biggest county now in the in the state. But even when I graduated from law school in 2011, I had to work. I couldn't take another bar loan now and just, you know, sit and, and study for the bar. I came back and I started working, doing medical billing. And I was studying on my off time and I luckily then by then the internet and and everything was around. So I took an internet only course and I remember just being so terrified because I wasn't taking the same bar prep courses as as my fellow students. And I was just petrified that I was not going to pass. But, you know, I think about areas like us and even more rural areas like West Texas, you know, what availability do those kids have to if they have to move back home or they have to move to a certain area to help study for the bar. And that's a huge hurdle to overcome in passing the bar. Oh, no, absolutely. And and remember, there were no computers uh, when I mm-hmm. was getting ready to take the Texas bar. So I didn't have access to anything, nothing. You know, I literally, there were some tapes and then they had uh, the outline, yeah. you know, uh, the, the Barbary outline that you could just read. And that was it. That was my preparation. Plus, I was working full time, so I didn't have time yeah. to do it anyway and had two kids. And so I read when I, I literally would stay up till all night. I still have, when I took the Illinois bar, I am a little bit OCD. I literally had my schedule from 6 a.m. when I woke up in the morning till midnight when I went to bed at night. 
and it had my schedule of what I needed to do with my kids, when I went to when I went to work, when I studied, when I went to the bar courses, when I came home, when I did. I actually had that hour by hour of how I worked it out so that I could study for the bar in Illinois. And in Texas, there was just nothing. I, I just really didn't have the time. And as you know, we do not have a law school. No. In south of San Antonio. And mm. there's a lot south of San Antonio, as I tell people. <laughs> and so it makes a difference. It makes a huge difference that somebody who wants to get a legal education, those are huge challenges and limitations. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I think it's a it's a huge issue that we currently face in this area. And of course, there's been a lot of talk about possibly adding a law school down here um, that hasn't come to fruition yet. But there is a huge market south of San Antonio along the border, not only including the Rio Grande Valley, but including Laredo. So um, I think that's possibly something we may see in the future, hopefully. I would like to see it because it would not only not only does it give an opportunity to our kids here, but also uh, it gives you law clerks for mm-hmm. for the lawyers, for the for the judges. We do have the court of appeals down here now, which happened when I on my watch that we now have a court of appeals yes. literally in Edinburgh. All of that makes a difference. They can be clerks at legal aid offices. They can, all of those resources that law schools bring and that students bring. We don't have any of that. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you got involved in immigration because that's what you're known for around the community is being a huge advocate for the immigrant community. Um, After you made partner at your firm in Brownsville, you then left to solo practice. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. And in your solo practice, what kind, what kinds of immigration, you know, I know you worked on immigration, but were you doing criminal and PI or was it just solely focused on uh, immigration? It was concerns? mostly uh, pretty much, but my immigration practice started from the very beginning with legal aid mm-hmm. because when I was in law school during my first summer from law school, I went to Illinois and I got a job with the migrant project of legal aid. And I went back to those farms where I had worked as a farm worker and now I was a law student and we were doing wage and hour issues and uh, working conditions issues, yeah. bathrooms, water, uh, shorter hose. I mean, all of those issues we were working on and I got to work on as a student. And so uh, came back and finished school. And then when I graduated, I had married somebody from, from Chicago. So I moved back there and when I was looking for a job after law school, it just so happened that that same legal aid, the Legal Assistance Foundation of Chicago, which I had worked the migrant project with, was opening the first immigration project in legal aid in the country. Mm-hmm. And I, I just happened to be at the right place at the right time, and I got offered that position. And so I started working on immigration issues right out of law school and got involved in some huge class action lawsuits literally within months. Yeah. Of, of becoming a lawyer. So I had done all of that work before I came back to Texas. And when I came back to Texas, I came and became the director of the Immigration Project for Texas Rural Legal Aid. Mm-hmm. I'm working and doing that wonderful work, and that's when I got involved in the education class uh, case that ended up at the Supreme Court. And while I'm there, Reagan is president, mm-hmm. and he literally, they cut all of the funding for immigration work by legal aid organizations. So I, I didn't want to give up my practice. I mean, you know, David, again, David Hall, yeah. who had, the reason I went to law school was still at, le- at legal aid. And he told me I could 
work in any other area of the law that, that we were funded for. I said, I can't, I, I can't, I have to do immigration. And so I had no choice. And so I left and went into a private practice uh, doing, continuing to do my immigration work. So I know we've talked about this before, about how important it is, especially for female attorneys, to get out there and to network and to meet people at conferences and, and talk to your peers in whatever area of the law that you're practicing is. And you actually have just an incredible story about how reaching out to someone that you thought was just a genius in your field, who was a hero to you in your field, ended up working really well for you. Can you share that with our audience? Yeah, that's when I was in, in Chicago and and there was going to be a, a PL. It was a practicing law institute. At, that's what it was called at the time. And there was going to be a big immigration conference in New York. And my supervisor says, you, you need to go you know, to this conference. And I'm looking at the program and I see... Uh, you know, Professor Fragman was on there, and I was just starting to do Fourth and Fifth Amendment challenges and immigration proceedings, which you got to understand is tough because immigration proceedings are considered civil proceedings, proceedings and yeah. so they, they were not criminal proceedings. But you're still getting incarcerated, so I was going to make my fight based on constitutional issues, and I wrote him a letter, and I actually said, "Dear Professor Fragman, I am this nobody, young." little person here in Chicago and I'm coming to the conference and can you give me you know 10-15 minutes of your time for me coming because I want to go over some issues with you and he he responded and I got to meet with him and I got to sit with him for quite a while and in the end we ended up become really good friends over time because when I came back to Texas I went to another immigration conference and all the big names were there and I was in the audience and I raised my hand and I stood up and I was asking some questions. And when that when that conference was over, the big guys came over and said, who is that girl over there? That girl over <laughs> there. And, uh, and I got to meet them and they said, she needs to speak at the next conference, period. And I did. And, and you know, and I started with that. So there was a, an assertiveness, mm -hmm. maybe some people would say aggressiveness, but for me, it was 100% substantive yeah. because it was, you know, for the work that I was doing and I was trying to be as creative as I could in, in, my, in my work. And, in, and it was because of the work that I had started in Chicago that showed me that the federal courts are a place where you can challenge what I saw as the injustices of the time. You know, and I think that you bring up a really good point that we hear all the time as female attorneys is, be sure not to be too aggressive. I think that we we get told that a lot or that we're not being aggressive enough. I think we walk a very tight line and it's not just attorneys. I think we've seen it also with female candidates for office. Some women are afraid to to be aggressive, to go after what they want or to, uh, you know, be aggressive with their peers. And I think it's important that they know that those things can end up working out well and in their favor. Um, they just got to follow what they're passionate about. Absolutely, and you have to remember too, because I don't think your generation could can relate to the fact that when I was in law school and then when I became a lawyer, there were the the I want to say that at the time, fifteen percent of the lawyers in in the country mm -hmm. were female, less than one percent were Latinas. Yes. There were more uh, African American women. We were the lowest of the low of mm -hmm. in terms of numbers. And so in my world, I walked into a room, I walked into a courtroom, I walked into a courthouse, and I would be the only, for sure, the only female Latina, and usually the only female, 
and usually the only Latina <laughs> in in the group. Yeah. And I, I think that brings up a really good point that I'd like to, I, I know that experiencing law and going through what you've gone through as a woman itself is, is, you know, a challenge in itself. I, I remember I read an article where you talked about how you got called honey all the time or sweetie, you know, and uh, that still goes on in some parts of the profession today, but being a woman of color must have presented its own unique challenges when you were trying to forge your way uh, and doing what you loved. Well, what was um, what was positive about all that was that we bring our life experiences to our work when we mm -hmm. do this kind of work. And so I was bringing all of that. I, I, I had a purpose. I had a purpose. I knew what kinds of issues I wanted to address as a lawyer. I, I never wanted to be a millionaire. Mm -hmm. I never wanted to be a PI lawyer and find that lot you know i say if you want that i tell young people go buy a lottery ticket you know i wanted to do what i was committed to and i had lived a life that i had seen so much injustice and there was so much work to be done and so that i had that purpose and i was able to do that and make a living you know so yeah. i, I there, there was a hundred percent passion in everything that i did and i look back on some of the things that i did and i'm I I remember being at a raid in a in a factory, mm -hmm. and the uh, the union had called us, and so we showed up at the raid, and there's immigration picking people up, just just going and picking the Latinos and saying you go you go and sending them to the cafeteria, and then and then taking them from there to the immigration offices, and I get there and I start telling and yelling within the factory. You know, in Spanish, don't answer their questions. You don't have to answer their questions. You have a Fifth Amendment, right? You don't have to answer their questions. You know, and I gave them these little rights cards to mm -hmm. try to give them to. And, you know, and these big old white immigration officers came up to me and said, what are you doing? You know, I'm here. I said, I'm trying to give them their rights. You know, you're trespassing. If you don't leave, you are uh, obstructing justice. You are interfering with a federal investigation and all this. I said, well, you're telling me that now, but uh, I got invited in here so mm -hmm. I know I'm not trespassing and they got very very aggressive with us mm -hmm. and so then they were putting them on the buses so I ran out and I could see that they were taking them on the buses so I grabbed a chair and I stood on top of the chair and I had a megaphone and that somebody from the <laughs> place had given me and I'm yelling at everybody in the on the buses telling them don't answer anything and then I raced to, to immigration and got to the offices and they brought the people in, and I had some names because we had already had families started calling us and started calling us because we were active in, in that community. And uh, and I luckily, I ended up getting some clients who hadn't been interviewed. Mm -hmm. And they were the women were the brave ones. The guys were pathetic. Mm -hmm. We'd tell them not, and they would. They'd answer everything. And I had a group of women, and I said, and they didn't. And I said, no matter what they tell you, what they say to you, don't say anything. Don't talk to them. Don't answer anything they tell you. And they did it. Mm -hmm. And I fought the fight with them. And I said, now that means you're going to be in jail probably longer than the people that are talking. Because they would give them bonds. Mm -hmm. And they wouldn't give my people bonds because they wouldn't talk. And then you know, we had to get a hearing before a judge in order to get them to... And, and I made it a point that anything they said there could not be used against them, you know, in their, in their, in their regular case. And in doing, you know, so it was... I was beyond passionate mm -hmm. about what I was doing at the time. And I, I heard a story, obviously, from your daughter, since we're friends, 
but um, about an incident that happened when you were already an immigration attorney and it happened to your daughter on bottle um, at the airport. I'm sure you know which incident I'm talking about. And I think it serves as maybe a cautionary tale that even, you know, if you're fighting the good fight and you're out there and you're doing this work, um, racism can touch you in ways you don't expect. Do you, would you mind sharing that story? Amparo Amparo, uh, went to uh, high school Mm -hmm. in Newport, Rhode Island because she got a scholarship mm-hmm. to, to attend high school there. And so she would travel back and forth from Brownsville at the Brownsville Airport. And they were questioning her, quote, immigration status at the airport. And before, they, they were, as they were trying to ask her, and of course they questioned me as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and I, you know, and I told the officer, she, you know, she doesn't have to answer your question. So they were going to try to keep her off the airplane. And I said, but this was before 9-11. Yeah. Uh, so things were not as crazy as they are now. And I told her, I said, get on the plane, get on the plane and, you know, and I'll deal with these guys later. And, you know, and I gave them a lecture, you know, on the, on the fourth and fifth amendment and their basis for questioning her was appearance. She, cause she had darker skin color yes, than you did. Yes. And she was a student and she was trying to have a little backpack and was on her way to school. And they decided that that was enough. They said she looked like this is, I have the letter because I wanted, I got to my congressman. He said, you all need to give, you know, her uh, a, an apology mm-hmm. for what she went through. They refused. They said that she looked like an illegal alien. And uh, this actually ended up making national news, right? Uh, this incident here at the airport. Um, and being such a huge immigration advocate to think that that could happen to your own family member must have been pretty terrifying it was well for for because it was her mm-hmm. uh when it would happen to me finally one day i have a, an immigration officer following me i had a couple of incidents that it would take too long to go through in this podcast but so i'm walking and this was later after they had tried to stop me from getting on an airplane mm-hmm. um and he says excuse me excuse me aren't you linda Yanis? and i'm like yes he said yeah uh they told us if you see this woman don't talk to her, you know. <laughs> don't talk to her. <laughs> so, so it all worked. Out. It all worked out in in the in the end. But um, but no, I I mean I'm seriously looking back on that. Don't ask me where I got the courage. Where I got, I don't even know. Yeah. I don't even know. Well, you raised two amazing daughters, both of whom are lawyers, and. Um, are really huge advocates for their communities, respective communities. Uh, Amparo is in Houston, right? And Reggie's here in the Rio Grande Valley. And you actually got on the Court of Appeals in a pretty unique way. If you could go ahead and tell our our listeners exactly how you got appointed to the Court of Appeals by Governor Ann Richards, who's still one of my favorite governors. Yes. Well, uh, the Court of Appeals ended up with a vacancy because uh, one judge retired, and, and another judge who was on the court was moved, the retired, the judge that retired was the chief. Mm-hmm. So they moved another judge to appoint chief him Justice. to be chief. So that opened up his seat. And so uh, I literally got a call and uh, from the local uh, Democratic, uh, you know, leadership saying, you know, are you interested on an appointment to the Court of Appeals? And I'm like, uh, I, it just came out of literally out of the blue and I had a lot of those kinds of things happen to me in my career and explained to me that there, that there was this opening and that it, it was Governor Richard's uh, 
appointment and they had realized this was in 1993 that there had never been a latina serve on a court of appeals in texas even though texas has 14 wow. courts of appeals in wow. the state and has i think nearly um a, how many uh judges a hundred and something i mean a bunch of judges and we've yeah. never had a, a latina and so she wanted to make you know break that barrier and make that historic appointment and um obviously there were other women lawyers here in the valley and they wanted it to be somebody from the valley and uh you know i guess i was the person that uh didn't have too many enemies in the political <laughs> world and so and so i got literally i just got picked i got sent to austin and when i got there it was her cecile richard's husband yes. was the appointments person and uh i arrived there and at the capitol and and he looks at me he says relax relax he says you've got the job he says we just wanted to meet the person that brought all of the factions in the valley together <laughs> to agree on a name. And uh, and that was it. That in itself is a feat. <laughs> you know, uh, once you made the Court of Appeals, I think that was a huge step for Latina lawyers everywhere. Um, but when you when you got onto the court, what was the makeup gender-wise of the 13th Court of Appeals? Was it still primarily male at that time? Yeah, yeah there had never been a woman on the court, ever. It was six judges. There were the five with me. There was myself and five males. And when I went to my very, very first meeting with mm -hmm. the court, uh, the court was in Corpus at the time. We didn't have a, a valley court. It was in Corpus. So I show up in Corpus and I walk in the room where we have the conference room for all the judges. And when I walked in, all five of them stood up and <laughs> I walked in the room. <laughs> and it was a wonderful time for me and a wonderful experience for me. I have to say that my fellow judges were wonderful people to, to work with. They were really great. But I felt that I was bringing a perspective. You know, when we talk about judges, we talked about we, we, we all strive for impartiality, mm -hmm. unbiased, unprejudiced on anything, right? Because you have to make a decision strictly on the law and the facts of any given case. And that would be great in, in, in another world, yeah. but not in the human world. Because not only do people have actual biases, not only, we, every single human being has them for on one issue or another, but we also have unconscious mm -hmm. biases that we don't even realize. And because it's a deliberative process that we go through, right, an analytical process, all of that's going to come into play when you're looking at a... Because what are we doing? We're resolving conflicts. And as we're resolving those conflicts, we have to decide, you know, what's credible, what isn't. Uh, you, you have to sort through the facts. Law is interpreted, you know, so I could go on all day about this whole, you know, originalism and textualism and all of that because it's interpreted. We are interpreting it and based on those facts, and who we are comes to the table. And I remember cases where I think my experiences as a female, and I came into the picture, mm -hmm. and I was able to go and talk to my fellow judges, and what was wonderful about them is that they were all open-minded people. 
did I win the argument every time? No. But I know there were times when, when I did. Mm-hmm. And if my voice hadn't been there, a case could have gone the other way. And I think that that's probably where I wanted to go with this is, you know, initially the court was all male except for you. Um, by the time uh, you uh, were done on the 13th Court of Appeals, we are now primarily female court. That is correct. Um, and with several more Latinas on the bench yes, now. Yes, um, So I think you were definitely a trendsetter for our Court of Appeals, but also for the whole state, you know, as, as the population uh, matures and as Latinas and Latinos make more and more of our population, we look to role models like yourself uh, to but kind of But you know what part of it that I have to say this is that I made it my mission when I got there that I was going to bring other women with me. Yeah. You know, I, I wasn't like, oh, I'm so special and I'm the one who deserves to be there. And, and, and because I'm so special. No, I'm like everybody else. Right. And there are many, many other women who can do this. And so the next appointment was another woman because I went out there with my fellow judges and said, that's what we have to do. And we went and talked to Nelda Rodriguez. Mm-hmm. And I remember going and meeting with her and said, look, this is going to be a position and you need to run and we need to get you and we need to. Yeah. And I was out there looking for talent yeah. to come. I've always been like that. And I'm, I'm sorry to say that I, I, I have some colleagues who believe that they're there because they're different from other women and they're special and they're better than other women. And they don't really are, you know, it, it, they're just not motivated for that. That's just not my makeup. And so I, that was my mission. And then uh, Alma Lopez on, on San Antonio, she always makes fun of me because I beat her by like a couple of months or something to my appointment. And she, you know, she'll, I won't use the, the word that she uses, you know. <laughs> she says, and then, judge, and, then, and then the governor appointed her to San Antonio. And, uh, and she goes, and you beat me, you little, you know, <laughs> you know, to get there. She and I, of course, had been friends. She was another immigration lawyer. Yeah. And we had, we, we've been friends since, since the seventies. And so, you know, and she's like me, you know, it was like, we need to find other women. We got to motivate them. Tell them, you know, when there's a position open, we need to, you know, go in, lobby for them and fight for them for appointments. We need to encourage them to run. We need to tell them don't be afraid Mm -hmm. this is how it works I'm going to tell you how it works and and we need to talk to the guys yeah and you know and that was that was our mission you know I think that's probably a really important point that I hear a lot of is that you know you can't just go down that path and blaze it for yourself you have to bring others along with you and that's a huge point you know motivating other women to follow in your footsteps and maybe to even go farther than you did and I think that is a, a fact that, or a trait that some people forget about when they're trying to go to these heights of being judges and justices is um, there are other women out there who should, should be doing the same thing, who should be following in your footsteps. And, and we thank you for all the work that you've done down here because I know that it, as a resident down here, as a female Latina lawyer down here, you blazed the trail for most of us down here. And being able to follow in your footsteps and always count on your support whenever anyone wants to do anything. I know you've always been supportive of my state bar work. It's a it's a huge thing to have, you know, other female lawyers in your corner that are cheering you on and believe that you can do the things that you want to set out to do. Absolutely, absolutely. I spent a lot of time right after I got on the court going around, uh, not just doing, you know, legal presentations, but I went to elementary schools, I went to high schools, I law schools, universities, Mm -hmm. and telling them, and I look out at these kids, and I say, 
you're we're the same you're me i'm you and you can be me you can be sitting where i'm sitting yeah you know it it i you they need to our 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 young people our students need to see themselves i mean diversity in the judiciary is critical to our democracy critical yeah. to our democracy and i i think that one's that brings me to what i want to make is one of the final points is you know, having uh, female attorney heroes is, is, is a big deal, I think, to other, you know, women attorneys. But having women of color who are sheroes that are up there fighting the good fight, becoming justice and justices are really important to the younger female attorneys like me who are women of color. And I think it's important that we have role models that look like us in those places of power or are running for those positions. Um, I think it's important just to see some women get out there and and run for the highest offices in the land and try to be Supreme Court justices and run for courts of appeals and run for governor. I think especially in the time that we're in right now, that's hugely important. Absolutely. In my uh, master's thesis, the title is A Deconstitutionalized Zone in America. And I was writing about the fact that as Latinas, Latinos in our community, we can be questioned about our immigration status even though in my case, I'm at least a sixth-generation American, right? Yes. And so why, why am I being questioned? And I used a case, a Supreme Court case, that basically said you can be questioned, right, within that 100-mile zone. Sure. And so then what I argued was if I had been on the Supreme Court when that case was decided, because I am an appellate judge, I know the dynamics of an appellate court. I said, if I had been there at the table, that case might not have turned out that way because the judges know each other. They become friends. It's a collaborative effort. It's not like a trial judge where a trial judge sits alone and makes all those decisions. In an appellate court, the, the, the most important judge is the one who can get the votes for the position that they're taking. That's the critical judge, right? And I told myself, I would have known them. They would have known me personally. They would have known my story. They would have known my family because judges socialize together. They talk together yeah. at that appellate level. So at the appellate level, at the Supreme Court level, I said, and nobody had my story at the table when they decided Martinez Fuerte and they could make a statement like that, that you can question an entire community. And, and so it makes all the difference in the world who is sitting and who is wearing those black robes. Yeah, I completely agree. And before we uh, sign off for today, Judge, uh, do you have any advice for the young female attorneys out there, women of color or not women of color that are coming up and, and starting their practices and, um, are trying to make a mark on our profession and on our, our world. My only advice is work hard. Don't do anything for recognition. Do it because that's your job in front of you. And do it the best. Be the best at what you're doing. And you'll shine and people will see you. And opportunities will literally come to you. They will come to you if you're doing your job.
Thank you so much, Justice Yanez. Thank you for being on our podcast. We really enjoyed having you, and we look forward to all the amazing work that you're continuing to do in the community. And I'm looking forward to all the amazing work that you're going to do. All right. Thank you, Judge. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode. Please support the work we're doing by liking the Texas Young Lawyers Association's Facebook page and follow us on Twitter at Tex Young Lawyers. And tune in for our next episode on Wonder Women Wednesday.